Well, as uh, Leanne just read a moment ago, Mark chapter 4, we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we titled the series, Who Do You Say That I Am? We started it in the fall, and we took a break intentionally. We took a break to celebrate Advent, the coming of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, and then we took a break at the beginning of the year to talk about our focus and prayer for the year, which is change, maturity in Christ, transformation. So if you've been with us over really the last five weeks. We, we intro that to begin the year as our vision for the year. We want you to see you mature in Christ. That's God's desire for you to be built up, rooted in love, and grow up in Christ. And so we talked about that over the last four weeks. What does that look like? How do people change? Um, and now we're re-entering this series in the Gospel of Mark, Who Do You Say That I Am? And if you're new to the Bible, if you've missed the fall part of this series, the reason we titled it, Who Do You Say That I Am?, is because that's a significant question in the book of Mark. The book of Mark is 16 chapters, and halfway through, right smack dab in the middle of the book, you see this question Jesus posed to his disciples, and it's, Who do you say that I am? But it's not just his disciples. It's to you. It's to me. It's, it's this question of, Who is Jesus? Let's look at his life and, and decide who do we really believe that he is. Is he just a good teacher, a nice guy? Was he just an inspirational figure? Or is he God in the flesh? And all of us, the disciples included, all of us today, have to come to a moment where we decide that. Jesus says, hey, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross, you deny yourself, you come and die. You, you don't do that for a good teacher. You don't do that just for a nice guy. You do that for the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe who came to be with us in flesh. And so all of us have to come to this, this moment of who do we say Jesus is? So we're taking this series to look at the life of Jesus and see how his life affects our life. And so look at it with me, Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to see this power of Jesus on display, this kingdom of Jesus on display, just through a simple story that has a lot of impact. Leanne just read it, but if you look at it with me, it starts verse 35. There's a lot of detail here. Notice the details. Mark says, on that day, well, that's, that's intentional. On that day, if, if you pick back up where we left off, this has been a long day for Jesus. If you flip back through a couple pages, Jesus has been teaching to large crowds. He's been talking about a lot of profound things, using parables, stories to do that. And this is the end of a long day. We're in the evening now, and it says he gets in a boat. But it doesn't just say he gets in a boat. All right, if you, if you look attentively, again, you see he gets in a boat just as he was. And it says there were other boats with him. There, Picture that. There's not just one boat. This isn't a myth. This isn't a fairy tale. There's other boats. It's a real sea, the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater lake in Israel. There's other boats around. Jesus goes in the boat just as he is, and we see his location in the boat. He was in a stern. He was sleeping, and he wasn't just sleeping on a board. He was sleeping on a cushion. Now, why go through that? Why point that out? Well, one, just as you read scripture, there's a practice of observation, interpretation, application, and you first have to start with observation. Many times, because of our culture is fast moving, lots of details in our lives, we just read scripture, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus in a boat, the sea, I got it, ready, go. 
and, and there's a lot of detail, and that detail is intentional. So I want you to see that as you read scripture in general, but specifically in this moment. Because what we're going to see, and Leanne read it, there's a sea, there's windstorms, there's Jesus quieting the sea. And some of us, as we read that, if we're not careful, we could think, that sounds really familiar to a myth that I read when I was in high school, to a novel that I read when I was in grade school. And, and here's what I want you to see is it's different than that, right? That in ancient literature, you had real details given, like to the T. Like, why do we need to know Jesus was in the stern? Because he was. Well, why do we need to know that it was the end of a long day? Because it really was. Why do we need to know he slept on a cushion and not a board? Because it really happened, Right? And with ancient literature that's, that's true, you see actual detail. You see real-life events, real-life people, real-life time and place, real-life Jesus. And so some of you, maybe you're newer to the faith, or maybe you left the faith for a while, you just came back to church, and you're like, Tim, I left because some of this stuff is just kind of hard to believe. You need to read a little bit closer. The level of detail that Mark gives us shows us these are, are real events, Mark, the gospel of Mark was written, it was the first gospel written after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Scholars think it was written 20 to 40 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That Mark wrote this with the help of Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, an eyewitness to all that had happened. These are real events, real time, real place. All right, so what's the place? Well, we see they're in the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, as I already mentioned. Maybe you will be familiar with that sea. Uh, it's where a lot of other things happen. Jesus fed the 5,000 right by that sea. Uh, Jesus gave his sermon on the mount right near that sea. A lot of things had happened on that sea. Here, there's a storm on the sea. And, and the sea in that day was a scary place. You don't even need a storm. The sea was a, a scary place. Place. It was open water. It was known for chaos, danger, and being out of control. And I think for a lot of us, maybe that's a little bit hard to picture. Because, yeah, we have the sea today, but if you're scared of water, you just don't go over the sea. You can stay at home, right? Uh, you can fly in a plane. You can drive in a car. Like, there's all sorts of ways to get around. You don't have to go to a swimming pool if you do not want to, right? And that day, it was, it was different, the sea was their primary mode of travel. They didn't have planes. They didn't have even cruise ships to go on the sea in a safe way. They had boats, and they had to travel by sea. And many times, people would go out to sea and not make it back. And so you even see in the Old Testament, you see these explanations and descriptions of the sea as this scary, dangerous place. But for us, we don't see that quite as much. Technology, other modes of transportation, we don't see that quite as much. Our view of the sea, yeah, it's dangerous, but it's limited. And that's because we have things like aquariums. One of my favorite things to do with my kids right now and my wife is to go to the Odyssey Aquarium in Scottsdale. And it's this moment we can go to this controlled version of the sea. Right? That's why we love it so much is we can go and we can safely look at all the sea animals that if in real life they were right next to us, they would eat us. But we can go to this aquarium and we can have popcorn and we can just be snacking. Oh, look at that. Look at that. 
Isn't that so great? Well, one of my kids' favorite things to do right now is to, to follow along with the seals. If you've, ever been, if you've ever been to that aquarium, there's a huge window, and you can run alongside with the seals, and they'll just swim along right beside you. It's so cute. They're so playful, right? Now, what enables my kids to do that? A really thick glass barrier that's in between them and those seals. And you're probably thinking, Tim, well, seals are nice. Like, what's the big deal? Seals are dangerous, right? Now, on the, the totem pole, like, they may be down here, like sharks up here, they may be down here, but they're still dangerous. Just this week, I saw a video of this lady, thinks she was going to kiss a seal, and it was, it was real cute, and then all of a sudden, the seal grabs her by her dress and yanks her into the water, Right? And so the sea is dangerous, and sometimes we don't really feel that because we can choose whether we want to go to the sea or not. They didn't have that luxury. And so as you see the sea, you need to be picturing this out-of-control, chaotic, dangerous place. That's what they were picturing. That's what they saw. And so it was dangerous already, but in addition, it was dangerous because there was a storm. And again, we get some detail here. It's not just a storm, it's a storm at night. It's a storm when it's dark outside. Now, whether you're six or 60, one thing doesn't change. We're kind of scared of the dark, right? So there's the sea that's scary and chaotic. There's a storm added to that, but it's not just any storm. It's a storm at night, and it's not just a storm at night. Mark says it's a great windstorm. We see evidence of that. Water is filling the boat, the disciples, several of them experienced fishermen who know what it's like to be in a boat, who've probably been in a storm on the sea. They start to think, are we going to die? Are we perishing? So you need to be imagining a scary, dangerous moment in this sea with a storm. And they ask Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They ask a really significant question. Jesus, don't you care? You see, this passage is similar to the book of Mark. It has a lot of action. There's lots of things going on, lots of, of details. But this passage in particular is woven together with a few significant questions. The first one is by the disciples. All this chaos going on, Jesus, you're asleep on a cushion. That must be nice. We're about to die. There's a huge windstorm. It's at night. Everybody's scared of the dark. Jesus, don't you care if we perish? Now, that question is significant, not just for them, but it's significant for us. Even if you believe in Jesus and call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you've lived any life at all, there have been times where you've asked that question as well, where you felt like you're in a boat and it's sinking about emotionally, about financially, about physically, about relationally. And there's some scary things going on. There's some chaos going on. At your job, there's some conflict that just doesn't feel like it's going to resolve. With your kid, there's some sickness that they don't know what to call it yet. And you're in the ER. And you're wondering, what is this? There's some conflict relationally just with other people that you just think, man, that guy gossips about me. That girl says these things about me. They're not true. I'd love to confront that person. How do I really do that? And there's chaos in your life. And as you go to bed at night, 
those moments of anxiety well up within you. What is happening? What could happen? Jesus, don't you care? And at our core, we're asking, like, Jesus, do you see what's happening? This is a big deal. Do you see it and do you care? And Mark lets us in this moment where the disciples ask that question because we all have that question and we get to see how does Jesus respond. Look at it with me, verse 39. We see, and Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus, don't you care? Jesus in a moment doesn't just answer their question. He, he proves the answer to their question. You notice that? Jesus doesn't get into a, a debate like probably I would with my kids when they ask me and they have before. Daddy, I want this. Daddy, I need this. Daddy, this is happening right now. Like I spilled my drink and everything's frantic. It's like the dangerous sea in that moment to them. Like, Daddy, don't you care? And I'm like, this happens 500 times a day. Yes, I care. Like, but you see, because I'm your dad, I care. Like I helped create you. Of course I care. Jesus doesn't go through that diatribe like you or I would. He just in a moment shows to them, I care in a profound way. But it's not even in just that moment. You notice this scene here. Jesus doesn't wake up at a lot of other things that he should have woken up for. This great chaotic windstorm, you think Jesus should have woken up? Maybe. Wind crashing into the boat, can you imagine? You think Jesus should have woken up? The disciples arguing you think Jesus should have woken up? When does Jesus wake up? When the disciples come to him, their teacher, their leader, and say, Jesus, don't you care? I mean, this is like mom 101, right? I know my wife, mom of three. I mean, one time in Phoenix, I don't know if you guys remember this, there was a small little earthquake. My wife didn't wake up. All kinds of things happen at night. My wife, I look over, she's not waking up. One of our little kids cries out. <gasps> Is that Tanavi? Did you hear that? I'm like, trying not to hear that. I'm, hope, I'm gonna act like I didn't hear that. But she shoots out of bed and goes, and guess what? I'm, I'm like, no, I don't think it was. I don't think, I think, just go back to sleep. And guess what? One of our kids is walking, sleepwalking through the living room. One of our kids is going potty. She just hears it. Why? Because she cares. Jesus, even before this, this massive, powerful act of quieting the whole sea, showing he cares, even before that, he gives them his ear because he cares. Jesus answers with action. Jesus answers immediately as he cares. And it says... Then he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. I just love that Jesus didn't just tell the wind to stop. He, he rebuked it. <laughs> Don't you just love Jesus? 
he rebuked the wind. The wind, like nature, he rebukes it. Why? Because he created it. Colossians 1 says that by him and for him and through him, all things were created. Jesus created that wind, so the wind gets out of hand and he rebukes it. And he says specifically, peace be still. Peace be still. Both of those, the word, phrase, basically means silent in the original language. Silence. Why use both? Why use peace be still? Well, peace is used in the present tense. Be still is used in the perfect tense. Grammar students, that means ongoing, continuous. So, so peace is, hey, silent right now, wind and sea, I rebuke you. And then be still is stay that way. Hey, don't, don't, don't act up. Peace, be still. And maybe you could just look at that again. Maybe you're like, well, Tim, I've read crazy stories like this. I mean, maybe he just timed it all right. And maybe after a big storm, it was just about to die down. The clouds are clearing. The storm lets up. And Jesus in that moment times it just exactly right. And all of a sudden the waters are still. But notice what it says in the text. It says not just the wind stopped. There's a great calm. If you've ever seen a storm in the sea, you know one thing that when the storm stops, the waves keep going. It's not calm for a while. Right, lifeguards will tell you, hey, hey, don't get in the ocean yet. It's not time. The, the riptide will take you in. The current is too strong. But Jesus, he stops the wind. He stops the storm. Peace, be still. And immediately there's a great calm. No waves. Right, this is a different kind of power that Jesus puts on display. And what's amazing about Jesus' power is it doesn't fit in our box. You see, last week we talked about Jesus as the suffering servant, that Jesus redefines greatness as serving. That's his kingdom. That's his game. It's a different game than our culture and our world. And if we're not careful and we do this in our culture, we can begin to put Jesus, okay, well, he, he's a servant. Okay, I'm going to put him in that box. Like Jesus was meek and mild. I mean, he was just a servant. He loved the little children, which is true. But what you see in our paintings of Jesus, what you see is our culture talks about Jesus. He's a nice guy. Jesus is my homeboy. Put it on a shirt. Right? And we begin to put Jesus, yeah, he's a servant. I like that Jesus. Now, the Jesus who rebukes the wind and rebukes me, I don't like that Jesus. Let Jesus get back in your box. You're a servant. And Jesus in this moment is showing you, I'm a servant but I'm also a king. I'm going to suffer, but I'm also able to make the wind suffer. Jesus is powerful, and Jesus is a servant. You can try to put him in a box, but he won't fit. Right? And even in that moment, as he's powerful, he still serves. Right? This is not power that brings war. This is power that brings peace. It's a different kind of kingdom, different kind of king. It's a power that brings peace. And it's not like peace that we think about. It's not peace that you put in a diffuser, essential oils, and it just makes you feel better. Right? It's not that kind of peace. It's not 
peace, like some ambiance that you're able to create in your home. This is a different kind of peace. You know what kind of peace it is? It's the kind of peace where when everything around you is chaotic, is dangerous, even to the point of almost dying, everything around you is like that, that internally you can be at peace. How do we know? Well, there's a moment where there's a massive storm, people are about to die, and Jesus is doing what? Sleeping. That's the kind of peace Jesus has. That's the kind of peace Jesus gives. Scripture says that Jesus doesn't just give us peace. He is our peace. So the kind of peace that could allow Jesus to sleep in the midst of a death defying storm. That's the kind of peace that Jesus offers to you. He extends that peace to us because he extends himself to us. So he's powerful, he's a servant, but he doesn't use those gifts to lord over. He uses those gifts to bring peace to you and to me as well as the disciples. So we get Jesus, we get this kind of peace. And that brings us to the question of fear and faith. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, it wasn't their fear in and of itself. A storm is scary. Like, it would have been right to be afraid in that moment. But what did they ask Jesus? Jesus, don't you care? That goes right to the core of Jesus' character and nature. Jesus, are you really loving? Like in this moment, and are you, are you really loving? Do you really care about us? I mean, crazy things are happening. Do you see them? Do you care? And they have fear because they're not sure if they can trust that Jesus is that way. And I believe as I read this, we don't have intonation. We don't have nonverbals. But you just see a little bit, have you still no faith? I mean, there's some surprise in that voice. Like, you of all people, my disciples, my closest people to me, you've seen all these miracles. You've seen all these teachings. You've seen it firsthand. And you still have no faith? And I think a lot of us, Jesus is asking that same question. Because we do go through chaos financially, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And we do wonder, Jesus, do you care? I think Jesus would say to a lot of us in here, you, you still have no faith? After all the things I've done in your life, I saved you from spiritual death. I brought you to life. I healed your marriage that was on the brink of divorce, and, and you still have no faith? I give you breath daily to fill up your lungs, and you still have no faith? I give you shelter for your family, for your kids, and you still have no faith? I know for me, this was convicting this week as I thought about even our church. Our church started in a chaotic time with a storm. It felt like the boat was sinking. We were part of a, a big church that got closed down just a few short months in. All the funding was pulled and I got laid off. Some of you know that story. Some of you were here for that story. And through that, it was a fearful time. But God brought us through that time. God started a church called Phoenix Bible Church. 
that most people assume just because of the name that we've been around for 70 years. We're a four and a half year old church that started because of a horrible, tragic situation of a church closure. And God started, God birthed a new church out of that where lives have been changed, people have been baptized, marriages have been restored, sin that has been a cycle of sin in people's lives for a long, long time has been broken. People have been set free over the last four and a half years. And yet, about a year ago, the facility that we met in as a church was a school, and we got notice we were being evicted with six weeks left to move. And in that moment, I'll be honest, my first response was, was fear. Like, Jesus, do you care? <laughs> Six weeks? Eviction? Doesn't seem like you care. And I had some moments of doubt. And then what did we see? We saw Jesus come through again and provide a church building on a Sunday morning that was empty, which doesn't exist in case you didn't know, for us to meet in, that you're meeting in right now. In June, we'll celebrate a year in this place. And again, we've already had eight baptisms, people in this water celebrating going from death to life in Jesus Christ. And yet, even since then, and when I see that and you see that, we're like, Jesus is loving enough to care. Jesus is powerful enough to act. We've seen it. But there's still still things that have happened since then in our church, in my life, where I wonder, yeah, but what about this? So just recent events, like, well, what about this? What about, what about, what about that I don't even know is coming? What about that? Are you going to care then? And I feel like Jesus is saying to the disciples, like he's saying to me, you still have no faith? Just take a look back to a couple points in the last few years for them in the last few days and see the profound power that I have. And we forget that. And Jesus is is bringing up this question, not just to the disciples, but to you. Where is your faith? Not when everything is going well, but when things do get stripped from you. Do you immediately in that moment, in that place of fear, do you run to your flesh? Do you run to doubt that seeds other doubt? Or do you run to Jesus in faith? Because you've seen him move before and he will move again. He's loving enough to care. You've seen it. He's powerful enough to act. You've seen it. You've seen it in your life. I've seen it in mine. And he's asking for us to have faith. And the disciples in this moment, they begin to realize they shouldn't be afraid of the storm. They should be afraid of somebody else. And it's Jesus. They say this, and they were filled with, it says this, and they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It says they were filled with great fear. This is a different kind of fear. There's a reverence, there's an awe of, hey, something is happening here. Something is happening with this guy. He is loving enough to care. He is powerful enough to act. Even the wind and sea do what? Obey. Again, the wording is very important. Jesus rebuked the wind. They obeyed him. Like a kid to a parent. The wind to Jesus. 
and they're starting to figure out who then is this? Because they would have known what a lot of people in that day would have known. There's only one person who controls the raging sea. This out of control thing that's dangerous that people go out on little boats on and never come back. There's only one person who's in control of the sea. You see it in Psalm chapter 89 in your Old Testament. Oh, Yahweh, God of hosts, who is might, mighty as you are, you rule the mighty sea. And when its waves rise, you still them. They're starting to figure out only God controls the sea. So wait, if only God controls the sea and you just rebuked it and told it to obey you and shut up, you're God. Now, they, they start to wrestle with it now. Later, as we said, Mark chapter 8, who do you say that I am? Even later than that, it takes them a long time. Jesus has a resurrect from the dead for them to be convinced. But they start to see inklings of Jesus isn't just a good teacher. Jesus is God. That he's a God who's loving enough to care. And he's powerful enough to act. And we get that picture today. Now, I know some of us are thinking, well, Tim, okay, Jesus cares, and I, sh I should have faith because I've seen it, and he's powerful enough to act. It's not just that he cares. He's powerful enough to do something about our issues, but I have some issues in my life right now. Where's he at right now? I, I know you care in theory, but do you care about this relationship? Do you care about this sin that I can't let go of? It seems like it has hold of me. And I've tried, Jesus. I've tried to repent. We've talked about that recently. I've tried to confess. I've tried to go to some other people's. But I, I still struggle with this sin. Like, Jesus, I still have this issue at work. I still have this issue financially. I'm trying to provide for my family and, and get the house and the American dream. And it just seems like everything's working against me. My tire goes flat. The engine is messed up. The radiator is plugged. Jesus, I know you care, and I know you're powerful enough to act, but I got some things. You see, it's, it's Jesus is loving enough to care. He's powerful enough to act, but he's also wise enough to know when and how. You, you see some other times in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't immediately tell the storm to shut up. He doesn't immediately fix the problem. We're going to see over the next couple of weeks, there's a man who's demon-possessed. And you see it says there's a pattern where it led to that. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he heals them, but we don't know how long it was before that. We're going to see in two weeks that a woman has been bleeding for years. And Jesus is loving enough to care, powerful enough to act, but he hadn't acted yet. We're going to see in that same story, a little girl is going to be so sick that she ends up dying. Jesus doesn't make it to her in time. And people are going to say, you're too late, she's dead. But Jesus still acts, and he raises her from the dead. You see, at some point, this question of fear and faith, at some point, we have to look back on the promises of God. God starts a new church out of a church closure. God, God restores marriages that are on the brink of divorce. God heals sin and transforms it and enables you to repent even when it seems impossible. 
You start to read your Bible, which you've never done before. God brings change massively in our lives, and we have to look back at those moments and have faith to see, God, you do care. God, you're powerful enough to act, and you will act because you're wise enough to know when and how to do so. So does Jesus see your pain? Yeah, he does. Does Jesus care about it? Yeah, he does. It's in his very character and nature to care. Is he powerful enough to act? Yes, but he's also wise enough to know how and when. And even though for you, it seems like now would be a good time. My wisdom tells me like, hey, put some money in my bank account now. It's almost a zero. Like I would appreciate not an overdraft charge. Like that's the wise time. But Jesus says, no, I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna shape you. And in my wisdom, I'm gonna act when it's appropriate. And so there's some questions in this passage. There's some questions in this book that are really significant. Do you have faith in Jesus? Even amidst the storm, that he can give you peace so that even in a chaotic time in your life where financially, physically, emotionally, everything seems off balance, you're filled with anxiety, do you believe that Jesus can give you a peace where you can still go to sleep at night and know he has you, he's holding you, he will not ever leave you or forsake you? These questions that are asked are meant to stir questions for us. Where are you with Jesus? Who do you say that he is? How do you live in light of that truth? Let me pray. God, I thank you for this this story and these details that you just let us in on this picture of of how you care, of how you're powerful, of how you're, you're wise. And God, I pray that we would, in this moment, just consider this question of, do we have faith in you? God, do we have the kind of faith that can bring us peace, that that gives us you, that you give us yourself as our peace? And God, I I know these men and women, I know their stories, I know there's examples, I know there's sin, sickness, and strife in their life that they can point to vividly. And maybe they wonder sometimes, like, God, do you really care? God, are you there? God, are you powerful enough to do something about this? And God, I pray that you would increase our faith this morning. That we would know that in your very character and nature, that we can see it in this text, we can see it in our lives, that you come through and that we would trust you, that you are refining us, that you are leading us, you are changing us, that you wanna do that for these men and women even now. God, you are a powerful God who serves. You're a loving God who, who cares. You've put that on display. Help us to trust you. God, even now as we take communion, God, help us to remember we don't just have to point to Mark chapter 4 to remember that you're loving enough to care and powerful enough to act. We can point to the, the cross and the resurrection. Jesus, that you didn't just say you cared, you showed it by giving your life for us on the cross by dying a death in our place for our sin, by rising again in power to defeat that same sin. God, help us to see just even in the cross, even in the resurrection, if we ever wondered, God, you care and you're powerful. 
Help us respond. Help us to remember that in this moment now. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.